right, so good morning. It's good to see you this morning. If you have a Bible and you'd like to turn to Matthew chapter 22, we're going to continue in a series uh, on the kingdom parables of Jesus and, God, and Matthew's gospel. We're Actually, there's, a, there's three, three parables consecutively here in Matthew 21 and 22 that really hover around the same theme. So it's kind of a mini-series uh, here in the middle of this bigger series of these gospel of the kingdom parables. But Matthew 22, a familiar passage of scripture for many, uh, the parable of the wedding feast, beginning in verse 1, if you'd read with me. It's also uh, on um, page 827 of the Pew Bible in front of you. It's on the screen behind me as well, so you can follow along. Let's read. Hear the word of the Lord. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm and another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. And the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite the wedding, to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both good and bad, so the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment and said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Matthew's gospel is full of these parables of the kingdom because the gospel is the gospel of the kingdom, which means we don't just believe the gospel. We become the gospel as we believe. That's what we've been talking about this fall. In other words, the reality of the gospel, as we believe it, begins to show up in our lives. Faith makes a difference. Whenever that difference becomes concrete so that you can see it, so that you can experience it, that's the kingdom. That's, that's what Jesus means by the kingdom come. And it's an opportunity for evangelism for Christians to explain the difference, to tell the culture that we live in, 83% of the city that we live in here who do not believe in any form or fashion, to explain, this is why my life is different, because I believe this. And so each week we've been looking at one way the difference shows up in each of us by using these parables to do that. And this morning we come to the topic of joy. And I love to talk about joy because... I typically can have so little of it in my life. And, I, and you may not know, I, on Tuesdays, <clears throat> excuse me, Tuesdays is the day I kind of pray for this aspect of our church. And on Tuesdays, I walk this room. So I just walk around the pews. And, and one of the things I consistently pray, because, you know, um, Presbyterians have been called the frozen chosen, which may be um, unfair, but maybe not quite so much. And so I just walk the room and pray, oh, God, give us joy. Give us joy, make it show up on our faces. Give us joy as we gather together. And so I, one, of the, one of the big things, I'm not the best prayer, but one of the consistent things I pray for us as a church is that the Lord would give us joy because, because um, the, 
the confession that we ascribe to says that our chief end, in other words, the number one reason why you and I are here in the first place is to glorify God, and you can probably finish it, and enjoy him. Which, of course, John Piper has changed to say, and I think rightly so, we glorify God by enjoying him. So the glory of God is at stake in our joy. But Martin Lloyd-Jones also believed, he wrote a whole book, which is probably my top five of all books that I've read, just as an encouragement. He believed that a joyless Christian uh, is a huge obstacle to, to evangelism. That joyless Christianity really, really makes evangelism hard. The church should be the place where people know they can go and find joy. Because the kingdom is a wedding feast, which means this and this that we're going to do this morning, this is the rehearsal dinner. And so we should, we should be, in light of everything we're going to see this morning, we should be a joyful people. And that's what we're going to talk about from this text. But in the text, we're going to, we're going to unpack this theme of joy by looking at three features of the text. We want to see first the, the kind of the bigger picture of this parable is that the kingdom is like a wedding feast. So we want to talk about the wedding feast. Secondly, we want to see the dynamic with the wedding guests. And then thirdly, probably the most important part of the text is what, what exactly is happening there at the end with the wedding garment. That the man who shows up doesn't have a wedding garment, he's thrown out of the feast. So the wedding feast, the wedding guests, and the wedding garments as we center around this topic of joy from this part of the text. Okay, so I'm talking about joy, so... Put a smile on your face. Let's have a good time together this morning, okay? There you go, Brad. Good, thanks. First, the wedding feast. Let's look here. Verse 1, the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding feast. And I just want to stop there for a few minutes and consider the implications of that statement. C.S. Lewis wrote, joy is the serious business of heaven. It's a great pun on words. But true, joy is the serious business of heaven. And this is an important theme in biblical theology. In Isaiah 54 and in Isaiah 62, for example, Yahweh is likened to a bridegroom rejoicing over his bride, his people. In John chapter 2, Jesus' first public ministry happened at a wedding feast where he turned water into wine. Both John the Baptist and Jesus used the imagery of the bridegroom to explain his ministry. So this isn't the only place where Jesus uses a wedding feast as a picture of the kingdom. In Luke 14, for example, and of course in Revelation 19, the future that we look forward to for God's people is what is called the marriage supper of the Lamb. We will feast in heaven. Heaven will be like a wedding celebration, and a wedding is a joyful occasion, at least it's supposed to be. There's toasting and cheering and dancing. Even at the worst weddings, joy shows up in some measure. You can't help but celebrate, and if you don't, you stick out like a sore thumb, and you probably won't get invited the next time. So I want to talk about joy. I want to talk about joy because the kingdom is a wedding feast. We were made for joy. We're destined for joy. Now in the middle, we're made for joy, we're destined for joy, but all of this in the middle, we have to fight for joy. And if you look at humanity's beginnings in Genesis, we were made for joy. I mean, it's just so clear reading Genesis. Genesis just screams Joy, But, of course, sin has made this more difficult, so now we fight for joy. The world is full of sadness and heartbreak, at times crushing sadness. But it did not start out that way. And here's the good news, and it won't always be that way either. Now, right now, we sow in tears, but we will reap with joy, Psalms say. 
In other words, every tear that we shed in this life goes into the ground. And if you're a believer, what, what we're told there is that those tears that go into the ground, they're planted there. And in heaven, they will come up as eternal joy for you to enjoy forever. Isn't that great news? So profound is the joy that God promises to give us. And so for Christians, heaven will be joy that is so profound, it'll be enough to even heal all the resentments we experience in this life at the end of time wedding feast. Where there are no more tears and no more sadness and no more pain. I like what Mark Buchanan says. He says, if you think, <laughs> if you think as popular lore has it that hell is the party place where you get to slap the backs and tousle the hair of all of your pals drinking Budweiser and dancing the hokey pokey with them, then you've got your addresses seriously scrambled. The party is up there. Down there, grim, sour solemnity, long, scowling faces, endless, scolding sermons, much wagging of the finger, quibbling over minor points, rivalry, hostility, envy. The very last place you'll find a party is in hell. But remember what we've said. The kingdom is a wedding feast, but the kingdom is already and not yet. It's an important point to remember as we go through these parables. It's already, but it's not yet. It's not yet here in all of its fullness, but it is here in actual present reality. You can enter into it now through repentance and faith, which means that the joy of heaven is something that we can begin to experience in part today. Even in the midst of all the sadness, the hope of heavenly joy is so profound, it can push back into the present, and it can change the way you experience even the hardest parts of life now. That's what the scriptures teach. The kingdom is not yet, so there's fasting, there's, there's waiting, there's still grieving to do. You have to fight for joy, but don't forget the kingdom is already. That's what Jesus is saying. So there is feasting, there's real, there's real joy, there's profound supernatural what in the world is this kind of joy to be had in this life? Just think of Paul and Silas in Acts 16. It's my favorite joy story in all of the Bible. There they are, locked up in prison, shackled to the wall, being severely mistreated by their captors, middle of the night, sleepless night after sleepless night. And there they are, and it says they're praying and they're singing hymns to God. They're singing in their suffering. Supernatural joy, so much so that the jailer says, what in the world is going on with you guys? And he becomes a Christian because he sees their joy. And that's what the scripture promises we can have. It's not this fluffy, like superficial, like I'm going to put a smile on my face even though my heart is breaking in two on the inside. It's not that. We're talking about something different here. Joy is a buoyancy of the heart that just stays afloat in the promises and the hope that God gives to us despite whatever it's going through. Or you, the way I thought to say it, if you want to know what Christian joy is, Christian joy is the supernatural ability to smile at life no matter what it brings at you because you know uh, that God is smiling at you. To sing, even in the midst of suffering, because you know God is singing over you as the prophet promises. And so the note of joy and celebration around Jesus's ministry, it makes sense, doesn't it? But what's fascinating is it's one of the things that got him in trouble. <laughs> he and the crowds, the riffraff that were following him, were toasting the kingdom nightly with 
dinner parties, eating and drinking, and the grim, sour, solemn folks wag their fingers at their kingdom parties. Kind of like in the parable of the prodigal, the younger son being received and celebrated and welcomed, and the older brother staying outside and refusing to come in and join the party, refusing to enter into his father's joy. See, kingdom people, kingdom people are the ones who say, there's a party going on, I'm going to get in there. And not stay on the outside. But here's what I want you to see this morning. Please see, uh, no matter who you are, no matter where you came from this morning, there's an invitation to all of us in Jesus' story. Look at verse 4. He says, come to the wedding feast. Everybody's invited. If you're not a Christian, we're glad you're here. But please know that the invitation to faith in Jesus is an offer of joy. God is not the killjoy. Sin is. Real joy, ultimate joy. C.S. Lewis was a reluctant convert. <clears throat> he titled his autobiography, The Story of His Conversion to Christianity, Surprised by Joy. <laughs> it's a great title because uh, he, the last place he expected to find what he knew his heart was looking for was in Christianity, but it was ultimately where he found it. The search for joy, what he called longing, is what led him to Jesus. He said, we all desire something that we've not experienced. Even the best things uh, are not enough. They are, these are his words, only the scent of a flower we've not found or news from a country we've not yet visited. And so the conclusion he came to was that all of our havings are wantings, that nothing in this world gives us the joy that our hearts seem capable of experiencing. Nothing seems to completely satisfy, which means, and this was his logic, that must mean that there's something else. Beyond what this world has to offer, and Jesus makes it clear in this parable that there is, this is it. It's the kingdom of heaven that is like a wedding feast. That is the joy. Now, secondly, not only do we see the wedding feast, but notice the wedding guests here, because the parable is an invitation to joy, but it also teaches us what can keep us from the joy of the kingdom that he means for us to live with. This king sends his servants to announce the feast, but there, uh, there are those that were invited who when, they, when, when the announcement comes in the mail or when they finally, you know, when the servants come to them, look verse 5, it says, they paid no attention, they went off, one to his farm, another to his business. But then there are others, they even mistreated and killed some of the servants. So the king was angry at this development, and it says there that he destroyed those who had been invited and burned their city. So We've es there's an escalation that's happening in each of these parables. Last week, uh, you know, it wasn't quite this severe, but here he comes and he destroys them and he burns the city. And then he came up with another guest list. He crossed their names off the list and wrote a substitute in. And the servants went out this time into the roads and gathered all they found. Verse 10, both bad and good. Underline that phrase in your Bible. It's important. We'll come back to it in just a few minutes. But we have here a similar idea to the one from last week, the parable of the wicked tenants. There, there, there were those who mistreated and killed the servants when they came for the master's fruit, and so the master, we're told, would enact revenge and give the vineyard to other tenants who would give him his fruit. And after the parable, Jesus made it explicit. If you remember, the kingdom of God is being taken away from you, he said, and given to people who will do that, who will indeed bear fruit. And, and so he says that against the religious leaders. They realize that. And that's what's causing this escalating tension between the two of them. And you have, to, you have the same exact thing happening here. In fact, in all three of these parables, in the two sons in verses 28 to 32 of chapter 21, and in the wicked tenants in 28 
21, 33 through 41, and then here in this wedding feast parable, the three together explain an important and unexpected dynamic of the kingdom. And it's this, that the Jews were the original guest list. God had sent the invitations to them through the prophets. He had made all the preparations for the feast with them in mind so he could celebrate with his people that he loved. They RSVP'd. They said, we're coming. Yes, God, whatever you want for us to do, we're in. We'll do it. We're your people. You're our God. We're coming. But yet when the time came and when the bridegroom showed up, they would not come. So in an act of judgment, what's happening is Jesus is explaining to them how this is going to go. God is turning away from them. The movement would no longer be a Jewish movement. It would become a Gentile movement as well. And then there's that. He destroyed those servants and and burned their city, it says there, right? You see that? Destroyed their city, which is a, a reference to the, the destruction of Jerusalem probably in 70 AD. And so you have God very clearly saying, Jesus is very clearly saying, look, God is removing. He's removing from you. And he's moving on because... You won't come in. You won't live with the joy. You won't embrace what I'm here to do. You're fighting me at every point. But see, the question for us that we have to ask, I think is as important as we come to this, is but why would they not come? What's the problem here? What's their hang-up? What's the catch? Why would they not come? And there's an obvious answer. And then there's the deeper, not-so-obvious answer. And we have to deal with both. And the obvious answer is stated clearly in the text in verse 5. Look what it says. It says they paid no attention when the invitation, when the servants came. They went off, one to his farm, another to his business. And so it's very simple. They were busy. Let that sit on your heart. They were busy. And so the kingdom for them was not like a treasure buried in a field that you would sell everything to have as we talked about weeks ago it was for them an interruption it was an inconvenience it was just like oh gosh another another thing I have to do that got in the way of the things they really wanted to do so John Piper has written that the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison but apple pie he goes on he says it's not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven but endless nibbling at the table of the world it's not the x-rated video but the primetime dribble to reality we drink in every night. When God describes what keeps us from the banquet table of his love, it is busyness, work, and family. The greatest adversary of our joy in God are not his enemies. It is his gifts. Busyness is the enemy of joy. You can't be busy and distracted and get supernatural joy. Your heart is too hard. This world is too hard. Remember what C.S. Lewis said, how he put it. He said, it's the serious business. It's serious business to get this kind of joy. So I have to be your friend and say, be careful of busyness with work and family that take you away from spiritual things. Because the busyness will not necessarily create opposition in you. It will just dull your appetites. It will create apathy. That's what this really is. The word there is, is a word that means to be careful or to be interested in something, but then it's a negative prefix attached to it. So it means literally they paid no attention. They didn't care. They weren't interested. They had better things to do. But there is also a not so obvious answer to the question of why those who were invited would not come to the wedding feast. Some just didn't care. I mean, they, they just didn't listen. It didn't appeal. But if you look there in verse 8, it says, Others seized the servants and treated them shamefully, 
and killed them. And so there is the hostility again that we saw last week. And, and you know, you, you read that and you're left wondering, why are they so angry? What's, what's, the, what's the deal with these people? You know, you read the parable of the prodigal son, and at the end, you're like, why is the elder brother so angry about the welcome home party for his younger brother that he refuses to go in and join and enter into his father's joy? Why are the religious leaders making backroom deals to kill Jesus while the morally bankrupt and the sexually broken are toasting the kingdom every night? And it boils down to this. This is a really big deal. But it comes down to this. It's because the message of the kingdom was a threat to their religion and their religion was their identity. Let me take that apart. The kingdom was a threat to their religion. And religion is just the word I use to describe works righteousness. The Pharisees believed that the way to be right with God was to be right, to do the right thing or to, to have the right theology. Right? Their, their prevailing idea was good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. That's religion. Good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. It's really a matter of whether you're good or bad and what you do in life. That's religion. But the kingdom, of, the kingdom movement of Jesus just dismantled all of that because it was a grace movement. We're told in verse 10, good and bad were both invited. So it took all of those categories off the table. It started to dismantle the religious system of these people, which is why they got angry, because their religious identity was the way they... I, was there, you know, the, the sum basis of their self-identification? Think about that older brother again. His sense of self was wrapped up into being the good son. He was the one who obeyed the father. He put in the work. His moral effort was the basis of his self-conception. It's what made him feel right. It's what made him feel okay. It's how he knew that he was a good son and not a bad son, and that was the most important thing in the world. And so his father's joy over his younger brother took all of that away. Which is why he was so angry, because it didn't matter that he had been good. It was all for nothing. He was the one that wanted to be toasted. He was the one that wanted to be celebrated. And the father took it all away, and he realized that all of the good stuff that he had been doing for all those years didn't matter at all. It was all for nothing, which, of course, begs the question, what was it all for to begin with? And here's some applications that we can see at this point. See, the problem with religion, and again, we're just using that word to describe kind of this works righteousness, which can make its way even into Christianity, so be careful about that. But religion is about, isn't about God enjoying God. It's about controlling God. You can, be, you, can rebel, you can rebel against God by being bad. You can rebel against him by trying to be good and then using your goodness as a bargaining chip. But if salvation is by grace and not works, then God owes us nothing. He can demand, no, he can demand anything from us. We can demand nothing of him, and that's why, quite honestly, we prefer religion because, again, that older brother, I can't get away from him because there's so much of him here. His obedience wasn't because he loved the father. His obedience was for him. He was trying to prove himself. He was trying to set himself apart from his screw-up younger brother. He wanted, he wanted to be celebrated, which is why he got so upset when the party happened and he wasn't the guest of honor. It's not about God about controlling God, to get the life you think you need or the life you want, which, which also means that religion, as we're talking about it here, as we see it in that older brother and as, as we see it in these religious leaders, religion doesn't produce joy. You see it in Galatians too. Paul preached the gospel to these Galatian Christians. He founded the church on grace. Then false teachers came in and began to reintroduce works righteousness. They said, you know, it's not enough to just believe. You have to obey the law. You have to be circumcised. You have to follow the rules. And the Galatian Christians caved. 
And by the time Paul shows up uh, back at the church, he has some pretty strong things to say to condemn uh, the way they've allowed themselves to be taken off into error. But one of the things he says in chapter 4 is, what happened to your joy? Confession time for too long in my life. My experience of my Christianity and my experience of just Christianity in general was Christianity with no joy. But Christianity with no joy is just religion. And I'm so after this because there's a difference. There's a difference between religion and Christianity. Christianity is not just another religion. Christianity is the anti-religion. Christianity is gospel. It's something different than what we're talking about so far. And it shows up in this text in a discussion around what is meant by the wedding garments. And so let's go to the third point and see. There's the cause for joys here, too, where it really comes from. And it's an understanding what is meant by these wedding garments. So everyone is invited to this wedding feast that's being thrown by the king. He says, verse 9, to his um, servants, go to the main roads and invite as many as you find, but not everyone gets in. Everyone's invited, but not everyone gets in. Go to the main roads, invite as many as you find. Verse 14, though, many are called, but few are chosen. So you have to have a wedding garment. That's what gets you in. The king came to the feast. He saw a man who had no wedding garment, and it says he cast him out. And this wedding garment here would have been a special set of clothes that were set aside for certain occasions like a wedding. It was a way of showing respect and appreciation to the host for being invited. You would get all dressed up for the occasion, and most people had one set of clothing like this in their life, if they, if they had means. If they didn't, they obviously wouldn't have been able to provide that for themselves. But these people, these people who were invited here, A, they didn't have time to go home and prepare the clothes they needed because the preparations had been made, the party's going on. He's just like, look, go out into the neighborhood and grab as many people and just grab them and bring them in as you can. Last minute, like, we got to fill this place up so we can celebrate. So they didn't have time to do all the preparation and to buy the things they needed. And B, they probably were poor, and we know that because we're told that he sent his servants to the main roads, verse 9, which would have been the crossroads where most of the needy, you know, poor, even physically enabled, disabled people would, uh, would have congregated. And so the implication, all the commentators say, is that the king, these wedding garments must have been something that the king himself provided for the guests. And so the spiritual lesson for us is this, we need to be clothed. We need to be clothed. It's been the case from the very beginning, hasn't it? The first stories in the Bible that tell us about humanity in its infancy. In Genesis 1, 2, and 3, for example, the first man and the first woman, they're naked and they're unashamed. And then they rebel against God. And as a result, they feel shame. They become aware. They look, they're like, oh, we're naked. Whoa, when did that happen? That's kind of the thing they had going on there. It's a strange thing in the text. But what do they do? Well, because they feel shame, they at first try to sew fig leaves together to cover themselves, but it doesn't work. But right there in Genesis, right there at the end of chapter 2, it says, or at the end of chapter 3, it says God comes and he makes garments of skin and he clothes them. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. It's right there at the beginning, at the very beginning, because this is the basic human dilemma. We're all sinners. And the presence of God is the party. It's the destination of the kingdom of heaven. God's smile is the sun spiritually for every single one of us. We need our sin covered in order to stand before God and experience the joy we're meant to live with. We need a wedding garment to get into the party. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders don't know this. They think that their righteousness is enough. And that is what made them unworthy. Do you see that word? Verse 8. 
the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Now, here's the strange thing. You've got to get your head around this because this is really backwards from the way we usually think. What makes them unworthy? Or what makes a person worthy? Well, it's what did they think? They thought it was their goodness instead of their badness that made them worthy. But that's, that's the opposite of the teaching here. No, it's not their goodness or their badness because it's not works. What makes someone worthy is that they come because they feel their spiritual need of grace. Or to put it another way, in words we use frequently, what makes you worthy, all you need is nothing. All you need is need. The prophet Isaiah was clear. We cannot clothe ourselves with our own good works because even our best efforts are like filthy rags. We need a wedding garment. You can't earn your way. But you can't just come as you are either. That's really bad. Just come as you are. No, no. That's not what this teaches. This doesn't teach that. You can't earn your way, but you can't just come as you are either. You need to be clothed. And conservative religious people tend to think that right behavior and right ideology is enough, but it isn't. Liberal, irreligious thinking says God is love and he loves everybody just the way they are. So just come as you are and don't worry about it. No, no. That's not enough either. It it, you know, it doesn't matter what you do or don't do. No, no, that's not true. Your righteousness does not make you worthy, but you still need to be worthy. You still have to be worthy. What makes you worthy? Not your rightness. The good and the bad are invited because your goodness doesn't make you worthy and your badness doesn't make you unworthy. Your goodness is not good enough, but your badness is not too bad to be overcome because you don't clothe yourself. You have to be clothed. See, if I could go back to the story in Genesis 3 one more time, it says there that God came and made garments of skin and clothed the man and the woman. Skins. Skins. Where did the skins come from? It's like almost just fast forwards right through that, but it's such a profound statement there. Where, where did skins come from? And nearly all the commentators agree that there must have been some sort of sacrifice. The details aren't there. It's inferred. But the Lord must have took some kind of animal and killed it and used its skins to make clothing for the man and the woman to cover their nakedness. And that, friends, is the gospel. We deserve to die because of our sin. We are naked and condemned before God and have no way of clothing ourselves. If we try to stand before God on the merit of our own rightness, we would get outer darkness and we'd need a gnashing of teeth, verse 13. That's what we deserve. That's what, that's what apart from from the work of God on our behalf, we're destined for. And yet Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, came from heaven to earth to die in our place as a sacrifice for our sins. And his death and his perfect life of obedience to the Father, his moral perfection, his 100% obedience to God, his sacrificial death and his perfect life of obedience, it makes us right with God as we trust in him and not in ourselves. That's the rightness we need, see? That's the rightness we need to stand before God and not be terrified or embarrassed, but to be full of gratitude and joy. Jesus Christ is the wedding garment. The New Testament scriptures say, put on Christ. I mean, he's like a, he's like a piece of clothing that we wear. And that is where the joy comes from. Knowing that you have God's smile, but not because of anything you've done. And the reason that's such good news is that means nothing you can do can turn his smile into a scowl. It's all dependent upon Jesus. It's all grace. And when you see that, that puts a smile on your face. I've used this illustration before as we close today, but it's just so helpful. I, and I really love it. 
Uh, it really, I really think about it a lot in my life. Charles Spurgeon has a sermon on this passage, and he makes the point that if you're going to throw a feast, one of the things you got to do if you're going to throw a feast is make sure to invite beggars. Because, he says, the prim and proper ladies, when they come, more times than not, they act like critics. When the food comes out, they raise their eyebrows and mutter, hmm, and then go about uh, complaining about the service at the end of the meal. But the beggars, the beggars, they're so amazed to even be at the table, they cheer for every dish. Wow! Look at that! Did you see the turkey? Hooray for the turkey! Because they're like, I don't even know what I'm doing here. So we're going to have a great time. And that's the way we should be living. See, if you're not cheering at every dish, if you don't live with that kind of joy, it's because you don't see yourself as a beggar. And the reason we're not amazed at every good thing in our lives is because some part of us somewhere deep inside thinks that we deserve what we have or better. We don't see it as grace. Grace is only amazing. The only response to grace is amazement. But the good news of this text is that sin cannot keep you from the joy of the kingdom. But fear because, uh, fear because you're not good enough or pride because you think you are, they can. And that's the real sin. The sin underneath every sin is that. There's only one way to the kind of joy Jesus is promising here. Not just in heaven, but even now, even in a prison cell. And it's to know that rightness with God is through grace, not works. And to feel in your bones, to feel it like in your bones that... That what you deserve is outer darkness, but, but what you get is the smile of God. And then the love of family and friends and a job and the basic things you need to have a happy life. And it's all grace. Then, see, then you'll feast. You'll cheer at every plate. Your life will be marked by joy. And the party that will be heaven will get started. And you'll start living eternal life now to the glory of God. And people will look and say, I got to know what that person has found. Wouldn't that be great? Would you pray with me? So, Father, as we come to this table now, embolden us with the grace with which we've re- the grace which we've received in Jesus Christ, and may it truly melt our hearts and cause us, may it turn our frown upside down, because no matter what sadnesses we came into the room with this morning we grieve those because you you, and you grieve them with us but there is greater hope there is the greater promise of joy and so we ask that you would bring us into that joy now as we come around this table this is here here we get to practice what heaven will be like the wedding supper of the lamb and so as we eat and drink together uh, I pray it would be this this would be a, a, a celebration a table of joy for us this morning I pray In Jesus' name, amen. Go with a song in your heart. Keep singing. Amen. Uh, Because these words ring true for you. So this is the work that Jesus, the work of Jesus has accomplished this reality. That though I say it as a prayer, all of these things are statements of truth in regards to the way the Father's heart moves towards you. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. God bless.